Okay, so um, my name's Deb Stammers and I live and work in Northwest Wales um, on the beautiful island of Anglesey and Ismorn. Um, and I'm going to talk about Wales today. And I just want to take you back um, 100 years to the beginning of the 20th century, uh, when Wales was in the throes of the 1904-1905 evangelical revival. And Christianity in Wales, and particularly non-conformist Christianity, was in its heyday then. And there were thousands of chapels, um, over half a million members, almost a million adherents. There was a thriving uh, Sunday school movement. But then go forward a hundred years from that. Um, in 2007, Tiff and published a survey of church going in the UK. And in that survey, Wales was described as arguably the most secular nation in the UK. And um, the, the survey found that over three quarters of people in Wales were either de-churched, that is, um, they used to go but no longer go, or completely unchurched. And there were only 12% of people in Wales who were regular churchgoers at that time. And Wales also had the largest proportion of the home nations, uh, which were closed, de-churched. So they had experience of church going at some time in their lives, but they were just not open to going back. They'd been inoculated in some way um, against church. And actually, unfortunately, things have declined even further since then. And the latest figures I've seen suggest that church going in the UK between 2015 and 2019 um, has declined about 6.7%. That's, that's membership figures, about 6.7%. But in Wales, that figure was 15.7%, by far the biggest decline amongst the home nations. So what's happened? What's happened in Wales? What is happening here in Wales? And are there um, specific features of Welsh Christianity that have kind of led to this wholesale de-churching of a nation? And these questions are really pertinent for me because I want to know what are the implications for those of us engaged in Christian ministry and mission in a Welsh context? And they were some of the questions that I wanted to explore in my MTH research, which I completed about a year ago now. And before I describe my research in more detail to you, I just want to say a few more words really about the Welsh context. When we talk about church in Wales, we are usually talking about the church in Wales, the Anglican church, uh, which is not a state church in Wales. It's been disestablished now for over a hundred years. But that's what people talk about when they're talking about church. And when you're talking about chapel, you're talking about non-conformity, talking about Baptists, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, Methodists, Welsh independents, range of denominations, but that's chapel. So we as Baptists, we're chapel. And uh, non-conformity during the 19th and early 20th centuries in Wales was so ubiquitous that really it became to be, came to be associated with Welsh cultural identity. So to be Welsh was to be chapel perhaps in a similar way that uh, to be English used to be to be Anglican. And the Welsh historian and theologian, Dr. Denzel Morgan, he describes nonconformist chapel culture like this. He says, it's a culture of the word characterized by exegetical preaching and Puritan values of honesty, 
thrift, sabbatarianism, hard work, sobriety and chastity. Sounds fun, doesn't it? And uh, this was often bound up with the Welsh language as well. So actually the decline of nonconformity in many areas of Wales could be seen to be uh, bound up with the decline of the Welsh language and a certain kind of Welsh identity and culture. But I live and work in uh, Northwest Wales in an area where uh, the Welsh language remains very strong and very much part of everyday life. So I really wanted to look specifically at a bilingual context here in uh, rural North Wales and I hope to shed light on the relationship that exists between ordinary people in a specific Welsh community and their local Christian places of worship. So I carried out my, my research in a large village in northwest Wales and like many villages, similar villages, um, that village has seen the closure of a number of chapels over the last 30 years, I think five chapels. Um, and in the village itself, the only places which remain, the places of worship which remain, um, are one Welsh language nonconformist chapel, and then also a struggling Anglican church which holds its services bilingually. Uh, the Catholic church has also recently closed. At the last census, um, around three quarters of the population of that village were able to speak Welsh. Now that is actually a huge, that's very, very high. In Wales as a whole, that, that figure is about 19%. Um, so, so three quarters, uh, you can see that the high proportion of Welsh speakers. So this was a qualitative study and I interviewed seven people in in-depth semi-structured interviews. And I wanted to find out people's experiences of church or chapel, whether they felt they had any sense of belonging in any significant way to these or any other communities of faith and how these were perhaps related to any residual Christian belief. Um, you might be familiar with Grace Davies' thesis of um, believing without belonging. I wanted to see as well whether there might be such a thing as belonging without believing um, in some of our, our Welsh communities. I tried to recruit uh, a range of voices for the study. So um, part of that was around language. So linguistically, I had four people who carried out their interviews in the Welsh language that so I um, can speak Welsh, and then three of them in English. Uh, although one of the English speakers, he was bilingual, but he just cho chose to use English for his interview. Four of the interviews were women, three were men. We had a spread of ages from 20s to 60s. And then we had some different backgrounds as well. We had a complete incomer from England. We had somebody who'd recently returned after spending much of her life in England. And we had somebody from a different region of North Wales who'd recently moved to the village. But then the remaining four were locals. They'd been born and bred locally. And the two who had spent time in England, their experiences were more of church. They were more of Anglican settings whereas the others, uh, their experiences of church and chapel were chapel. They were of nonconformist um, Christianity. Obviously the small numbers uh, create difficulties with how you could generalize in any way to apply to different situations. But I found Swinton and Mowat's work really helpful on this because they, they argue that although the purpose of qualitative research is primarily to describe rather than to generalize. 
they say that there are likely to be aspects of shared experience which will hold enough similarity to create a potentially transformative resonance outside the study. And I really did feel that for me as somebody living and working in a similar context in Anglesey, um, that there were resonances which uh, would, would resonate outside of this study. So I started off by asking people to tell their stories of how they came to the village and about their connection or lack of it with the churches and chapels, both in the village and elsewhere. And I then asked them more general questions about their own theories, about why they thought fewer people are now going to church or chapel than they did in the past. And finally, I asked them about their own beliefs, about whether they would describe themselves as Christian and about what their beliefs, whatever they were, meant to them. After kind of transcribing and translating, coding and analysing um, the uh, recordings, I used the uh, a thematic analysis approach developed by some uh, psychological researchers called Braun and Clark. I'm not going to go into it in too much detail, but their approach really attracted me because I find often in um, qualitative research uh, that it's quite passive. People talk about themes and uh, results emerging or kind of being discovered in a kind of passive way. But Braun and Clark's approach is very explicit about the role of the researcher in interpreting the results, that you're unapologetic really about the fact that you're approaching the data set from a particular viewpoint. You're looking for particular insights. And of course, as a Christian minister, um, I was hoping to find particular insights which might be helpful for me in theological and missiological reflection in the context of church decline and secularization. So now to discuss some of the findings of the interviews, and I can only give just a really brief snapshot here. But the first thing to say, which is something quite basic really, is that it soon became clear to me that all of the interviews, regardless of age or background, all of the interviewees, had at one time attended church or chapel in the past regularly, and all of them, for one reason or another, had stopped attending. So they were all de-churched. Most of them had stopped attending at some point in childhood or adolescence. Now, I hadn't set out to find people who were de-churched, and the interviewees weren't recruited on that basis. Um, but that spoke to me of the, the speed of the decline um, in Wales. Um, and uh, I kind of used the interviews to explore the reasons for, um, for people's stopping attending their church and chapel. So a lot of it was exploring their stories. And I don't have much time really for more than a brief summary of the themes that I picked out. Um, but first of all uh, was the theme really, which, which was of church or chapel, particularly chapel being old fashioned. And that might not come as much of a surprise to you, but this was a perception that was kind of the dominant narrative um, that church going was somehow associated with older generations, that the chapels were very much seen as out of touch with contemporary life. But this was less to do with form, um, external trappings such as buildings, worship styles, and much more people talked about the content. Uh, one participant, a man in his 60s, who I'm going to call Elvid, he'd stopped attending when his nonconformist chapel closed down uh, when he was in kind of middle age. 
and he talked a lot about the preaching. He said the preaching was, he used this great Welsh phrase, Ormod Rudlian, which just means too much talking nonsense. And he just said it was not relevant to life in the society he was living in at the time. And then two of the younger interviewees, uh, Alan and Rhys, um, they had deep kind of ideological reasons for leaving chapel behind. And it was related to their views on science, on history, on other religions, and the questions they had about these things in contemporary life, which just didn't seem to be addressed. And they saw Christianity very much as one of a range of options in the religious marketplace. The second theme I chose to explore was that of people's perceptions of nonconformity in particular, since this is still seen as the dominant mode of Christianity in many of the bilingual communities I work among in North Wales. Um, for the two women who were um, English speakers, the kind of outsiders, who I called Rachel and Maggie, um, their general perceptions of chapel culture were just of complete impenetrability and even bafflement. And this was partly a language issue, but it was also one of identity, one of feelings of belonging or not belonging to a particular culture. The word alien was used and they felt that the chapels were just impossible to access, the times of the services not even being displayed outside the building. They didn't even know how they could even go there or what time the services would start. But it was those who had been most deeply involved who were perhaps the most critical of chapel culture and vice versa. So one participant, Enthley, who was a young woman in her, in her 30s, she didn't have much contact with chapel really. She just had kind of dim recollections of a brief time in Sunday school as a child. And actually she seemed to have very few preconceptions regarding chapel. She didn't appear to have absorbed the kind of stereotypes of a, of a narrow repressive uh, nonconformity. And she even said at the end of her interview that she was quite interested in going to chapel, perhaps she'd look into it. And I think this does provide some hope that an unchurched culture in Wales might be more open to mission than a de-churched one. But what I found was those who had experienced nonconformity in all its fullness really and left tended to be the ones who were the most critical. And there was a motif of dressing up, which appeared in several of the stories and it was kind of implicitly or explicitly linked to hypocrisy. So Gaynor, for example, a woman in her 60s, she described people going to an assembly meeting in the big chapel and everyone was in their posh clothes. And she felt that people were just going to be seen rather than actually listening to what was being said. Um, Elved again, um, he uh, was perhaps the most articulate and sharply critical regarding nonconformity. And he actually had um, a much more positive view of the nonconformity of the past. He saw it as dynamic and politically relevant, engaged in the struggles of the working Welsh poor against the rich English landowners and the industrial employers of the region. And he contrasted this with the nonconformity of today, which he saw as cut off and socially irrelevant. So there was much more, of course, and I've just had time to give you a brief flavour of some of the content of the interviews, but I'm just keen to move on to explore some of the theological and missional implications of the study. And I want to start 
with this question from um, Stuart Murray from his book, Post Christendom, this quotation. He says this, as heirs of Christendom, we must decide what to discard as baggage weighing us down and what to carry with us as precious resources for the ongoing journey into post Christendom. And I think this gets to the heart of what I was seeking to achieve in this study. I'm sure that many of you are familiar with the uh, model of theological reflection based on Jane Leach's article, Pastoral Theology as Attention. And it talks about having an attention to the voices and particularly some of those voices that don't often get heard. And I would argue that a careful attention to the voices of ordinary people within a particular locality can provide really helpful starting points for making decisions like the ones Murray described. What is weighing us down and what should we carry with us? Because we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And that by listening with a posture of humility, we can make space for dialogue with those outside the church. And I really love um, Vincent Donovan's book, uh, uh, Christianity Rediscovered. Um, he was a Catholic priest who went out to do missionary work amongst the Maasai. And um, Stephen Spencer says this about his work. He had set out with the assumption that his evangelism would bring the reality of the Christian faith to the Maasai. But something more complex and interesting had taken place, a two-way dialogue in which a new form of Christianity had been brought to life. So it's important to go back to the basics of, of what we think we're doing um, and listening to those that we're, we're living and working among. So in Maltman's theology, missiology and ecclesiology are inextricably linked. And both of course proceed from the mission of Christ, which of course has its roots in the missio dei itself, the mission of God in creating, redeeming and remaking the world. And he writes this, the mission of Christ creates its own church. Mission does not come from the church. It is from mission and in the light of mission that the church has to be understood. And we often get that in the wrong order, don't we? Mission does not come from the church. The church has to be understood as coming from mission and in the light of mission. So this idea that church springs up where mission takes place and as a result of mission immediately provides a critique of the Christendom model of church in which the church and mission were separate and people were kind of part of the church by default. And nonconformity in Wales is a really interesting example as, as, of this because you can argue that it didn't start out in Christendom mode. Instead, it formed and grew as a result of dissent, as a result of religious revivals and informal networks. And of course, Baptist Christians are part of this. And it's also never been an established church. None of the various denominations have ever been formally connected to the state in Wales. But its dominance in the 19th century and beyond led to its becoming the default mode of religion in Wales, a carrier of Welsh culture, Welsh language, Welsh identity, whose power and influence was huge and was taken for granted. So to be Welsh was to be chapel. 
and it became a church closed in on itself, ecclesiocentric, and it's kind of become a Christendom model by de default, really. So the testimony of the interviewees uh, that I spoke to seems to demonstrate this, this inwardness and this closeness. And I kind of set out expecting to find more of a residual fondness or sense of belonging or sense of connection with the local churches and chapels. Maybe this sense of belonging without necessarily believing, but actually uh, I found this, this was largely absent. Um, and Maltman puts forward this concept of the open church as something to aspire to. And he says, the church of Christ is an open church. It is open for God, open for men and women, and open for the future of both God and men. The church atrophies when it surrenders any one of these opennesses and closes itself up against God, men, or the future. And sadly, I just felt that the overwhelming story um, being told about Welsh conformity in the interviews was that of a closed church, a church closed to God in which there was little sense of spiritual nourishment or vitality, a church literally closed or closing to people and a church closed against the future, failing to change or connect with people's daily lived experience in the contemporary world. And this was not the only story I must add that, that, that was, this was not the only story, but it was the loudest and the most prominent. And the interviews would appear to resonate with calls for new modes of church, which are missional, incarnational, participating in Christ's messianic mission and the creative mission of the spirit to create communities in Wales, which are open to God, open to people and open to the future. Thank you very much. Many thanks, Deb. Um, questions, there's uh, three already in the chat. Christine, do you want to come in first? Yeah, thanks ever so much. I really uh, found that a helpful and thought-provoking uh, presentation, giving us lots to think about. What One question that occurred to me was, um, what the impact of the last 12 months might have been uh, in your experience, um, whether, you know, you talked about new modes of church and kind of uh, by default, we've had to all uh, adapt to new modes of church. And, and do you think that that's changed uh, things since you completed the, these research interviews? Yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens going forward. Uh, what, what I've just found is a lot of the um, sort of the chapels, I've just stayed closed and some of them have actually that decided now's the time to close for good um, and it'll be really interesting to see moving forward ha what happens when they reopen um, and um, and how because uh, because a few of them have, have managed to go online um, but it seems to have been quite difficult um, and uh, it, it I think actually it, the pandemic might have have just provided the impetus that some have needed to to try doing things in a different way and to, to think differently. Um, so yeah, I, I think it will have certainly had an impact as it's had an impact on all of us. One of the things that I wasn't able to, to talk about was that one, the youngest of my interviewees very much saw the internet as a key reason why people had stopped 
going to church and he almost felt that that was where people were now going for um, answers to their questions, spiritual sustenance even, comfort when they were struggling. It's like the internet had replaced um, church. And, and, and so now, obviously, that is where quite a lot of church is taking place. So it will be interesting to see uh, moving forward where some, you know, some of the chapels have adapted and managed to to use um, online resources and are doing that in some quite creative ways. So it will be interesting to see. Um, but that's the very small minority of them. Thank you. Um, Jane, Jane Henderson. Hi Deb, thank you for that, that was brilliant. Um, yeah, I was interested in the um, the way you characterise the difference between the de-churched and the unchurched and how, more, how much more open you found the unchurched. And I just wondered, has that influenced at all your thinking in how you might reach those two groups of people? And have you got any thoughts as to kinds of missional opportunities you might kind of take up with those different two different groups? Yeah, I did find that that really interesting and, and just the way that people without any preconceptions uh, might have yeah, a completely different kind of openness. Um, yeah, I think the de-churched, it's really I think it's really difficult. And I think you'd have to do something very, very different and um, that is that's quite different from the what they would recognize as as church. And so perhaps something completely out of buildings, um, you know, that's, that looks very different, maybe um, making use of, um, of sort of people's hobbies and interests and things rather than something that looks specifically like a church. But in unchurch, I don't know, I mean, it's obviously it's a really small number of people I spoke to. Um, and this, but this person was, was a millennial, much younger, um, and, and perhaps, and did seem to, Sort of value perhaps the idea of, of a place which could be um yeah where there could be worship and a sense of connection with god and a sense of transcendence um so you know i think it's going to be a mixed economy isn't it and, and i think very much as well um i i wrote about um reflected on contextualization and the importance of the super hyper local in wales because you know, Rob Beamish is here, he's in Colwyn Bay, which is not far, it's just down the coast, but linguistically, culturally, it is completely different to where I am. So, you know, people in where one non-conformist pastor said to me, people in Wales will, will drive to Tesco, but they won't drive to chapel. And there's this sense of my local community, my bra, the word is bra, my patch, um, and the place where I am. And I think this sort of super local, hyper local, you know, we might be talking about small incarnational uh, manifestations of um, of the gospel. So yeah, who knows? I, I want to do this research again in the community where I am now, um, just to see what what people here say, because it's because it's culturally quite different to the village where I did the research. So it'd be fascinating to see what would come out of that. Thank you, uh, Ruth. Ruth Wood. Yeah, sorry about that. I couldn't find myself on the screen for a minute. Um, I've been out of Wales for over 10 years now, sort of in exile in, in Yorkshire at the moment. Um, but I remember there was a movement growing, um, partly around the new modern translation of the Welsh Bible, but in general, 
within the Welsh language churches where there were actual worship songs coming out that were written in Welsh, which and instead of translations of English ones. And I can remember people being very, very excited about it, but I just wondered whether that has resulted in any new missional activity, whether it's done anything to the chapel culture, whether it's become a separate animal altogether, or you know, what, what's happened there? Well, I definitely think there's signs of hope. And one thing that's really excited me at the moment is that the Baptist Union of Wales is actually um, doing a, a, a FORGE course. You might have heard of FORGE who, um, uh, come out of the Gospel in Our Culture Network and um, Cameron Roxborough from Forge is doing a two-year course for the Baptist Union of Wales um, on missional church and because it's actually in a way the pandemic has helped because it's meant that people from all over Wales have been able to join in with this course on Zoom um, and um, I was at a meeting of it last night and there were um, I think about 60 pastors on the call um, which is which I just find really exciting that the Baptist Union of Wales has kind of taken that step and there are um, you know it, it's, it's sort of isolated but there are pockets where there are um, yeah like you say worship songs coming out babel.net is being used um, and some exciting missional um, developments so I do think there is hope um, and I'm quite excited about the work of Forge and what that might um, lead to in the future so yeah it is definitely not all doom and gloom. Thank you, that really encourages me, because in my time, the Baptist Union of Wales was generally considered by evangelicals to be dead, and it clearly isn't, and that's great to see life sort of blossoming there now. Yeah. Um, and it was part of the English-Welsh divide, was this, this unfortunate spiritual arrogance among the, uh, the English-speaking Welsh churches that the others were sort of inferior. Yeah. So it's quite exciting to see something happening there, that's great. Yeah, my context, I'm working half-time in a Bugby church, and half time um, as pioneer minister amongst BUW churches on Anglesey. Mm. So I've just got a real heart for bridging that divide between English and Welsh speaking churches yeah. and um, yeah, to see what healing might happen as well in that context. Thank you, yeah. Okay, thank you um, both. And thank you, Deb, for uh, stepping in um, like that. That was <laughs> very helpful. I'm uh, apologize I couldn't uh, introduce you because I didn't have notes in front of me but Andy did it in the uh, chat there's some very very interesting reflections in the chat so do do have a look at that and uh, excellent paper Deb thank you